Is your legal department struggling with COVID-related disruption and a sea of changing guidelines? Docket can help. Docket is an easy-to-use tool for centralizing legal requests, managing workflows, and helping legal teams work together more efficiently. Visit getdocket.co today to learn more. Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm here with an important update from the corrections desk. Uh, This stuff is important in journalistic enterprise such as this one. I want to correct the record on uh, a mistake that I made last week in the offbeat section. I was discussing the movie The Proposal with Sandra Bullock. Yep. And I said that that movie co-starred Ryan Gosling. The Baby I, Goose. Yes. I mistook my Canadian handsome leading men named Ryan. That is, of course, co-starring Ryan Reynolds. Uh, we deeply regret the error. I uh, feel terrible that I did not catch that in the moment because I have certainly seen the proposal and should have known better. Yeah, and I mean, this is a point of pride for me. I consider myself something of a movie guy, and I know that he's in it. I literally just, like, said the wrong name. I didn't think that he was in it. But in any case, I was obviously thinking of the 2002 uh, murder mystery movie called Murder by Numbers. That's where Sandra Bullock plays a homicide detective, and Ryan Gosling is a uh, a suspect. Uh, That is not a good movie. Neither is the proposal, and I would appreciate it (laughs) if if we would just move on. If one country produces too many handsome Ryans, yeah. it, this is bound to happen. <laughs> sure. I think we need it. Yeah. I mean, I think we need export restrictions on Ryans. I've been yeah. saying that for <laughs> that years, but yep. that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's you, a topic for another show. I'm glad that you looped <laughs> us back to trade law. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, um, I'm so glad that that was handled right at the top of this show. Thank you. Um, just want to let our listeners know today, it's just going to be the three hosts uh, talking through some of the big news. Um, and I actually have one I'd like to start with that's about environmental law. Yeah, something I think we don't, uh, you know, we don't talk about maybe maybe enough. It's a you know, it's a big topic, but as we've discussed in earlier shows, it's sort of you know, it doesn't get into court that often, and so um, it's always a big deal when we get a big ruling. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, some of the problems with some of these suits in court. That's kind of the crux of what I'm about to bring up. Yeah, um, actually so, getting into the right court at the yeah, right time or anything. Yeah, Exactly. Mm-hmm. So this week, um, big oil companies lost a pair of court battles that could essentially tee up a whole string of new trials in California, looking to hold them accountable for damages that have caused climate change. I think if I remember correctly, we talked about these this style of case um, on a previous show. But, uh, you know, for the listeners, ca- catch us up on what sort of, you know, what what this vehicle is that, that um, we're using to, to sort of get climate change into court. Yeah, these are really interesting, so worth a reboot here. Um, The lawsuits were brought by various California cities and counties, so municipalities in the state. They claim that all the big oil companies you can think of, Chevron, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, BP, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, basically all the big hitters, um, they created a public nuisance because they knew the activities of their companies contributed to climate change, and they... promoted petroleum products as environmentally sound and responsible options anyway. So yeah. the suits Yeah, the suits are looking to get these oil companies to 
pay for actual damages from climate change, and to also help build things to prevent future harm. So we're talking stuff like seawalls. And that all sounds, um, you know, when you think about municipal projects, you maybe don't think about how expensive that could be. But this could cost really big bucks if the companies are on the hook. It could essentially be billions of dollars in damages. And as as Bill kind of alluded to, you know, this is a fairly novel sort of use of these kinds of public nuisance laws. And there have been various difficulties in sort of shepherding them to the proper authorities and actually deciding what courts they belong in and who can hear questions like this was really at the heart of what came down this week. Can we talk about what the Ninth Circuit did? Yeah. And I'm glad you set it up that way. I'm going to try to keep it simple, but basically we're talking about where do these suits belong? Is there a place for this kind of suit at the federal level or at the state level? What's the right venue? So the Ninth Circuit said state courts are the right place for these cases. They rejected arguments from the oil companies who wanted these suits in federal court. Mm-hmm. And just to give a little bit of an explainer about, well, what difference does it make? Why would the, the oil companies want them in fed court? Yeah. Um, in 2011, there was a Supreme Court ruling that effectively cut off federal tort claims relating to climate change. So... This ruling offers a different avenue of attack, and that would be state tort claims yeah. about climate change. So okay. the oil companies wanted it in federal court because they thought they could get the stuff tossed. Yeah. What had um, these cases have been trickling along for a little while? What had um, you know? What had happened that got us to the Ninth Circuit in terms of um, the lower levels of these cases? Yeah, I just want to go through basically two quick notes about what happened before. One of the suits was brought by Oakland and San Francisco, and it had been tossed out by a judge we talk about a lot, William Alsup, back in 2018. Alsup said that federal law should govern these cases, these these nuisance claim cases. Yeah. Um, But at the end of the day, he um, he held a whole science hearing about climate change. It was made a lot of news. But he ultimately decided global warming needs a a much bigger solution and it should be tackled by federal lawmakers, not the courts. So he tossed Mm -hmm. the case altogether. So he was basically saying it's a it's a question of federal law, but there isn't sufficient federal law that is sort of answer it written currently written to like to adjudicate cases like this. But this week's ruling dealt with two different cases and there's a separate case that went a different way on this same question, right? It basically went as differently as you can imagine. So in in a separate district court case, several other California counties and cities found a judge that uh, decided the suit did belong in court, but in state court and that state nuisance law claims could be pursued there. So totally opposing rulings, which is how we ended up at the Ninth Circuit having to decide this. And the Ninth Circuit did weigh in and said Alsop was wrong, that the city's nuisance claims are um, governed by state law, that the suits can be brought there. And it also rejected some contentions from the energy companies that these cases altogether should be preempted by the Clean Air Act, which would make them federal. Um, And so they basically said, no, this stuff can happen in state court. So this is, I mean, this has been... Uh, kind of weedy and kind of, you know, um, in terms of like technical procedural questions. But um, as we've sort of been talking about throughout this segment, it seems like those procedural questions when it comes to climate change lawsuits are are quite a big deal that have, they have big stakes yeah. in terms of how these cases will go forward. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time. And I mean, we as sort of the collective uh, people looking at the law, seeing yeah. different um, groups try to bring cases about climate change, saying that 
companies are you know precipitating climate change. They should be on the hook for some of the problems that uh, arise out of that. But they've had a really hard time getting traction about who has standing, where do you bring the suits? They're just very thorny. So this is, uh, you know, we're a long way from some sweeping merits victory for yeah. these coastal communities or environmental groups. But we do have an initial glimmer of hope for them that these kind of cases could come up through state courts and eventually make it to a jury. And eventually they could hope to see the results they're looking for. Um we had our own Keith Goldberg, who who does a lot of our energy reporting and has been covering some of this. Yeah, He talked to some environmental attorneys and others who said they just expect a lot more suits like these to now be filed in state courts because the municipalities are now going to see that there's a clearer path forward than has ever existed before. Yeah, if you have the blessing from the Ninth Circuit saying go forth with your state suits, it, it, would, it would seem to open the doors a little bit more. It would. And I think there's some momentum for sort of that line of thinking that it's not just the Ninth Circuit. There was also a similar um, case in the Fourth Circuit. That circuit ruled that um, Baltimore could, could bring one of these kind of suits in Maryland state court. And there's been some other lower courts that have sided the same way. It's not all 100% rosy, though, because as if this wasn't complicated enough, there's uh, three other circuit courts that are weighing this exact type issue right now. Mm -hmm. So it's possible we could see a circuit split here, and we may end up right back at the doors of the Supreme Court to give us some resolution about whether or not state courts can handle these kinds of claims. But for right now, it's it's a moment of big momentum for environmental groups in the cities and localities that want to hold oil companies responsible. Once again, this week's Pro Se is brought to you by Docket. If your legal department is struggling with COVID-related disruption and rapidly changing guidelines, Docket can help. It's an easy-to-use tool for centralizing legal requests, managing workflows, and helping legal teams work together more efficiently. Visit getdocket.co today to learn more. For our next segment, our sort of main segment this week, we're going to talk about uh, uh, a string of criminal cases that have been filed over the last uh, week stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen a lot of civil litigation already, and we've talked about it, but now we're starting to see criminal cases filed against the people that, you know... We all knew we're out there the minute that uh, things turned bad, that we're, you know, trying to take advantage of the crisis, trying to, uh, you know, use it for their own ill-gotten purposes. Um, you know, we'll be watching both civil and now these criminal cases for for uh, a long time, even after the, the immediate crisis recedes. I can just I can see now the Law and Order spinoff, the special COVID unit for the specific oh, yeah. COVID <laughs> crimes, the, the 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 plague of COVID crimes. Um, but it I is mean, there. There are I'm being glib, but there are, there are interesting stuff going on here. And we have brought up a lot of the civil litigation angles because those emerged a little quicker. Um, and but we were gesturing during some of our previous episodes that we thought some of these other things would come into. We're going to get into the gnarly the stuff. Yeah. yeah, it seems like they're happening now. So give us some of the big buckets here, Bill. What kind of criminal suits are we seeing now? Uh, well, the first one, because you mentioned bringing up, you know, that th we had talked about civil cases, but we had talked about maybe, you know, criminal cases might be coming. 
we discussed on the show um, a series of trademark lawsuits that were filed by 3M against right. people who were um, price gouging. And uh, one of those cases has turned criminal. So last month, 3M sued uh, a New Jersey company called Performance Supply LLC uh, for trying to resell millions of the company's N95 face masks, a very important piece of PPE um, at at like four or five times the list price. The case was, you know, it was sort of a, a, a square peg into a round hole kind of case, but they were using trademark law to say, look, you, this company tried to sell its masks to New York City by falsely holding itself out to be this authorized 3M distributor, and that violated federal trademark law. So, Fast forward to to Tuesday of this week, and things got a lot more serious than a basic civil lawsuit. Um, uh, federal prosecutors charged Ronald Romano, um, who's the owner of Performance Supply, um, and he's also a used car salesman, uh, <laughs> with wire fraud and um, a series of other charges. Uh, it, it also included... Um, uh, a claim under the Defense Production Act, which we've heard a lot about throughout the pandemic. Um, uh, the claims echo the the 3M lawsuit that this guy allegedly tried to get large quantities of these masks and then made um, a bunch of fraudulent representations to New York City in an effort to sell them to the city at you know huge huge markups and um, you know that that constituted wire fraud that he was holding himself out to be you know something that he wasn't and he was um you know attempting to defraud the the city of new york at a really uh sensitive moment these sound a lot like um it's like a war profiteering kind of vibe to this case so it's interesting to see that the official charge is like wire fraud for this yeah the it's 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 actually really interesting the um defense production act charge um you know it can it can seem important because it's this sort of novel law that has been invoked during the crisis, but it's actually only a misdemeanor charge. So the mm. really serious charge here is plain old fashioned wire fraud. And that's, you know, the really serious felony. Um, there was the, the the very same day that Romano was charged. There was another sort of similar case filed also by New York federal prosecutors against um uh, a former drugstore owner and pharmacist in Manhattan, a guy named Richard Sherpa, or Sharipa. Um, uh, he was apparently going by the nickname "The Mask Man." I don't know if <laughs> That's he was never good. I mean, I that, he... like the the press release for a lawsuit on this just writes itself. I know. I don't know if he was doing it himself or if the feds had called him that. It was an AKA in his indictment. Gotcha. Um, but Sharipa is accused of. Um, Buying up, uh, this was sort of a more low-scale version of this price gouging, where he bought up um, thousands of N95s and was reselling them sort of on a more granular level. He was selling them on the street in Manhattan, apparently. He was selling them to across a bunch of states to um, doctors and nursing homes and a funeral home. Uh, but he was selling them for as much as $25, and these things are supposed to go for like three or four. Yeah. So, Huge, huge price gouging. Um, in the indictment, they said that Sharipa reportedly told an undercover agent that, quote, this stuff is like gold right now. So he was it was sort of a <laughs> he's alleged to have uh, sort of knowingly done this. I mean, I try to avoid editorializing most of the time on the show, but 
I felt pretty safe in just going ahead and saying, like, this is gross. These people were doing terrible things in the middle of a global crisis. So, yep, I mean, got some lawsuits you, coming here. I mean, like you say, I don't know if he gave himself the. I mean, he, he certainly asked, acting like the mask man when 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 people are thinking about. You know, people name the mask man. They have masks and they are trying to conceal themselves. It uh, reminds it, <laughs> me. It reminds me of the uh, the Simpsons when Homer became the beer baron. Yeah, oh, sure. Oh, it's, it's, it's similar to that. Right. I've noticed. Uh, I've noticed in both these, we're we're sort of dealing in the uh, in the scuzzy crime infested East Coast. I I suppose we'll be moving away from that for our for for the next crime. We're staying right here in New York City. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Uh, that was parody. I, mean, I was kidding about that. I love New York. It's not scuzzy. Anyway, go ahead. It's perhaps unsurprising that most of these things happened. That you know, three of these four stories that we're talking about happened in New York because New yes. York was the the center of all this. But um, but yeah, I mean this this next story is is just a a good old fashioned case of bank fraud and trying to <laughs> trying hey. to take a bunch of money that you you didn't deserve. A classic of the genre. So, um, uh, prosecutors last week charged a, um, a man named, um, Mug Ma, um, with, uh, allegedly trying to get more than $20 million in government backed loans that had been earmarked for small businesses that were adversely affected by the, by the pandemic. Um, he was charged with wire fraud, bank fraud, and other charges on accusations that he basically, told a bunch of lies and and misrepresented himself to get um access to uh first the the paycheck protection program that um and and also the economic injury disaster loan program. So two different federal programs that were set up to help banks uh pump money out to small businesses that needed it. What kind of lies was he allegedly telling here? I mean, was he just not qualified for these loans? Like what happened? No, yeah, I think we'd was, all like to hear about some of the lies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's one thing if you're like, you know, these these loans were designed for like a business with 50 employees and you had 60 employees, so you didn't qualify. Um, this this guy like just made up all this stuff. The apparently he he claimed that his company he had he had a series of companies that had hundreds of employees and a multi million dollar payroll, but it was really just him. It was like a series of shell companies. He and, invented and- an entire like big company yeah and he got he only ended up getting uh you know like tens of thousands of dollars there was some eight hundred thousand dollar loan that he was approved for and then it got frozen once this investigation started he didn't get anywhere near the 20 million but um you know if you're going for if you're trying to defraud the government i don't know shoot high i guess you go for 20 you know hey i mean i've heard corporations are people but this is a little ridiculous Uh, you know, if, if, if what's alleged is true, but, uh, in any case. um, so our la- the, the last story is a little, I don't want to say less scuzzy, but it feels like this alleged, you know, uh, uh defendant didn't, did, did not quite understand, you know, didn't, didn't quite mean to cause all the harm that he caused or, or, you know, so last week, federal prosecutors charged a Georgia man with lying to his employer about testing positive for COVID-19, which, you know, when I was reading, I was like, ah, well, that doesn't, you know, that I mean, that seems crummy to do, but it doesn't seem like, a, you know, a, a crazy felony. But then federal the, offense, the, yeah. the, the, the flip side here is that his company was a Fortune 500 company that then had to completely shut down everything that he was involved in. 
uh, and, you know, clean everything and quarantine several of his coworkers and ultimately um, purportedly lost around $100,000 as a result Whoa. of this. That's a lot of money. I mean, from the worker perspective, you know, people have been known to say, <coughs> I've got the flu. I can't come in today. Right. Like, it starts out sounding so low level, but $100,000, that's a lot of money for a company to lose based on one guy's lie. The other thing, too, is that he falsified medical records to do this. So, you know, he had like a he had like a fake, I guess, report from a doctor that said he had tested positive for it. Um, uh, The one interesting wrinkle here is that the company itself was not uh, named. It was it was a Fortune 500 company. So obviously a a, a big entity um, and that that um, it was this was all done in Atlanta so you know things sort of narrow down but we don't know what company it was but but yeah I mean if you're thinking about lying to your employer about uh, having having COVID uh, I would I would maybe maybe think twice this before you do so this th- this would 100% be a Seinfeld plot if it was still on right now this is a George is Costanza so much trouble this is a George Costanza scam, like from front to back. I'm just gonna yeah. say that, but yeah, no, so all it's... of them are. He also made up Vandalay Industries. That's the <laughs> yes. previous lie. Oh, shoot. So I didn't he's... even think about yeah. that. Yeah, oh, yeah, man. yeah. He really, he, he he really got off pretty easy when you consider all the lying he did. But anyway, it's, love um, George Costanza. It's uh, it's it's you know, it's fun to sort of talk about some of these things. It's you know, we've obviously had so many heavy stories in the last two months that we've been covering but um uh you know it's it as as i think we've alluded to multiple times throughout this you know it's hard it's hard to be sympathetic for people who are exploiting something like this where you have uh you know there's all sorts of like problems where everyone is operating in good faith and it's still causing all sorts of problems (laughs) amid this and you know so if you throw on like malicious behavior aimed at people at their most dire hour um it's hard to hard to find much sympathy for those folks wrap up today's show but i do have one note for our our listeners that might have noticed something different today um guys we have some new music from our very own producer kelly marcano in the show yeah it frankly rules uh i don't know i'm i don't know if kelly's got the got the you know fortitude or whatever to jump on the call right now but i just want to say that i love kelly i love his music this has real Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross vibes. It does. Uh, yeah, I'm I love way it. into it. I'm way into it. Yeah, Kelly, if you want to keep writing stuff for us, we will keep including it in the show because uh, we all <laughs> think it's great. It's rad. We love it. He's giving us a thumbs up, folks. <laughs> great. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly is silently approving of our comments. But, His uh, music speaks for him. <laughs> he doesn't need to come on the show to say anything about it. We can say it for him. We really like it. Uh, hope you guys do too that are listening out there. And um, thanks for being with me today, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. I got to go set the DVR for the Kelly Marcano VH1 Storytellers. See ya. (laughs) See ya. Well, that's it. See you later. (laughs) But the the bookies beat him to death anyway. So he's dead.
Well, see you later. See you later. I also want to thank our other producer, Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Keith Goldberg, Stuart Bishop, Rachel O'Brien, and Craig Clough. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, check us out on Apple Podcasts and leave a review there. It helps other people find us. And if you want to know more about all the stories we've talked about today, go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.